me invite you to make your way back in the room. Welcome back. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Jude. Jude, this is the last sermon in the letter to Jude, from Jude. If you're new to the Bible, uh, if you open your Bible all the way to, uh, to the right, there's the book of Revelation. And uh, Revelation is the, the last book of the Bible. And just before Revelation is the little letter from Jude, who is Jesus's younger brother. And Jude uh, has written a small letter, but a beefy letter. It's taken me 12 sermons uh, to get through Jude, which may say more about me, uh, maybe than Jude. But, um, but in the short book of Jude, um, we're finishing it today. And you, may never, you may go the rest of your life and never hear a sermon uh, from the book of Jude or a sermon series. Certainly, maybe not one lasting this long through Jude, uh, depending on how old you are, this might be the one shot you have you know, to be an expert in this, uh, in this book. I challenged myself at the beginning of this that I was going to memorize it, and I got about 16 verses down uh, before I, I just stopped. <laughs> uh, but 16 is better than zero, and, uh, and it, it was a worthwhile effort, and, uh, and I've enjoyed walking through slowly. Uh, the letter to Jude. Now we come to verse 24 and 25. Uh, this is a doxology, and a doxology is a hymn of worship or praise to God uh, as it's typically defined. And this is, as far as doxologies go, one of the more beautiful ones in Scripture. So we're going to read it together, verses 24 and 25. And we don't always do this, but I'm going to ask you to stand this morning um, in honor of the Word of God. Uh, there is no command for us to do that, um, but we want to do that this morning uh, as, as a way to honor the Word of God and to ask God to speak to us through it. Uh, so let's read so, uh, uh, sorry, Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. Have you uh, ever been on a date night and you have a nice dinner and the waiter or waitress says, do you want to see the dessert menu? And you say, yeah, all right, I'll take a look. You take a look and, and you get a dessert and um, uh, it's just so amazing you can't finish it. <laughs> Not too long ago, Julie and I were at the Cheesecake Factory and, uh, and we had a nice dinner. And at the end of it, she handed us the menu and I took a look and I ordered a chocolate tower truffle cake, which I read it here for you. It's layers and layers and layers of fudge cake with chocolate truffle cream and chocolate mousse. It was about that high. You could see the stripes and it was so delicious. Uh, sometimes that's enough, but this particular time, Julie ordered the very cherry Ghirardelli chocolate cheesecake which is a cherry cheesecake on top of a layer of fudge cake loaded with cherries and Ghirardelli chocolate. 
it is amazing, right? And we put them in the middle and we would, you know, share with each other and she would take a bite of mine, I would take a bite of hers. And, and as determined as we were, we could not finish either of those desserts. It was just too rich and too delicious and too wonderful. And this is dumb, but I mean, in some ways the passage is like that. It's just too rich. I can't cover all the stuff in Jude 24 and 25. I could probably spend uh, the next three sermons, I won't, but I could, um, talking about all the wonderful aspects of Jude 24 and 25. It is uh, every bite of this passage, every word uh, of this doxology is so rich that, uh, that we would just need to spread it out to get a full understanding of it. I would encourage you uh, to look up sermons, maybe from other speakers, uh, if you need more than what we're going to cover today uh, in regard to Jude 24 and 25. But uh, we're going to press forward as best as we can, trying to get a grasp of this doxology. First question is, what is a doxology? Um, we often confuse it with a benediction. Doxology, benediction, doxa um, um, is praise. It's a word for praise, it's a Greek word for praise. Ology is the study. And so a doxology is a study of praise. And it's typically defined um, as a psalm or a hymn or a prayer of praise to God. And what it does is it describes the overflow of worship. As you meditate, as you um, fix your eyes on Jesus, as you um, indulge your soul in looking at the glory of God, worship breaks out. And it's often beautiful like this. Think about Revelation chapter 5. Um, in Revelation 5, a worship service seems to spontaneously break out when um, John is looking and there is uh, a scroll that can't be opened and a loud voice says, who can open the scroll? No one in heaven and no one on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look into it. And John began to weep loudly because no one was worthy to open it. But then one of the elders said, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then he looked over and between the throne and the living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, this amazing worship overflow explosion happens. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then all around, the voice of many angels, myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is an explosion of praise. 
when John gazed upon Jesus and when Jesus was declared worthy and righteous and able to open the scroll, immediately there erupted, and you notice the scope of it in Revelation 5, everyone in heaven, everyone in the sea, everyone under the sea, everyone everywhere began to declare the worthiness of Jesus Christ. The doxology is like that. It is when your soul is overwhelmed by the goodness and the mercy and the grace of Jesus that you begin to um, overflow with worship. Have you ever had that happen to you? When you're sitting and you're maybe having a quiet time and you see something um, amazing about God or He speaks to you or He calms you or He comforts you in a special way and immediately your your soul wells up with a, a praise or with a hallelujah. That's what a doxology describes. We've taken a doxology and oftentimes we've tamed it down and we've written it out so that it's well rehearsed and, and you'll probably recognize this one. There's a traditional doxology, doxology used in Protestant churches. It was written in 1674. I'm not going to sing it for you. You're welcome. But it goes like this. Praise God from... That's right, you know it too. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father... Yeah, that's why I don't sing. <laughs> Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen, right? That's the typical doxology. And though it's rehearsed every week, it may not describe a heart filled with passionate worship. It may just describe a memorized sort of box you check when you come into a church, but, but that's what a doxology is. Um, when we look back at this text, Jude is giving us a reason for worship. He's giving us a reason for worship. Now, listen, I can't cover all of it. If you were just to diagram this sentence... How many of you remember diagramming in class? Did you like diagramming? Uh, Raise your hand if you like diagramming. No, I did not like. Uh, But diagramming is the way in which you take a subject and a verb and a main clause and you attach it and then you you show the the, um, other clauses that sort of support and the other parts of a sentence, um, all with the slashes and the lines and, and all those things. If you were to diagram these two verses, it would basically say, to him... Uh, the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. It is the, the main idea of this passage is that God would be glorified. God would be glorified. But Jude gives us reasons from that main clause of why, why worship erupts. Now, I can't cover all that I want to cover. I'm, I'm pretty much not going to cover verse 25 to the monotheo he describes. God is the only God. I can't describe why uh, it's a Trinitarian formula in many doxologies that actually leaves out the Holy Spirit, but there is an implied Holy Spirit based on a formula. I can't really get into all of that. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. I can't cover those four descriptors or trace to you places where it's used in Revelation and in Psalms and in other places. I can't even talk about before all time and now and forever, meaning eternity past, before there was a thing called time, now and also forever, eternity future, why God is worthy to be worshipped. But I can point us to why Jude is overflowing with praise today. He is worshiping, and it is an overflowing worship, and it breaks out like it did in Revelation 5 in this beautiful doxology. 
Let's look back at the text and see what has Jude so worked up. Verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. All right, let's stop there. He is able to keep you from stumbling. What is it that they could have been stumbling about? Well, the whole context of Jude, if you remember back from verse 4, is that although he wanted to talk to them about their common salvation and he hoped to write them a letter to encourage them, he had to cut his purpose off and change directions because certain invaders had come into the church and it was their desire to thwart the church and to divide the church and to ruin the church with false teaching and with um, sexual immorality and, and sensuality. And so because they came into the church, Jude had to stop and he had to say, now I want you to contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints because certain people have crept in unnoticed who pervert the grace of our Lord uh, and, and turn it into sensuality and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That was back in verse 4. He's telling them why he had to cut it off. But then he says, how do you contend for the faith? You do it by keeping yourselves in the love of God as you pray in the Holy Spirit, right? As you build yourself up in your most holy faith and as you wait for the salvation to be revealed in Jesus Christ. That's how we contend. But the beautiful part here is in the doxology, he says that there is one who keeps you. There is one who keeps us, describing God as our keeper. Listen to Psalm 121 for just a second. In Psalm 121, we have this beautiful song. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not sleep. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. In the context of Jude, the Lord being the keeper is that he is able to keep those who have given their life to Jesus Christ from falling away in the process of those invaders who sought to lead them astray. Does that make sense? The people came in, they tried to mess up the church, they tried to divide people, they tried to lead people astray, and they were to contend for the faith. But Jude says that there is one who is keeping you if you are in Christ Jesus. He has a hedge of protection or a hand of uh, protection around you where he, you will be kept by him. Now this seems to be a mystery for us because there's a his part and there's an our part, right? In salvation... When you become a believer, you contribute nothing except the sin which made Jesus' death on the cross necessary. You understand that? You, none of your works contribute to your salvation. You can't pray enough. You can't give enough. You can't come to church enough. You can't memorize enough scripture. You can't give enough money away. You can't take enough mission trips. None of those works contribute to God saying you are worthy to be saved. You understand that? Your works contribute nothing to your salvation. Understand? But once you are saved, there is a place for your works that contribute to your sanctification. 
your process of growth, your development into Christ-likeness, you play a part in that. He works in you as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul said to the Philippians. There is an aspect in your sanctification where he says it here in in verse um, 20, Build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in other places in the New Testament, you bear a responsibility. God does not just do in you against your will or without your cooperation. Yet he keeps you. He does his part, you do your part. And so if you start to think, well, wait a second, um, does, does he keep or do we keep? We can't ask, which is it? Scripture allows for a perfect tension of seemingly opposing ideas with just the right mixture of our effort and his sustaining, gracious, and secure hand on us. And this points to another aspect of his keeping of us. It points to a doctrine called the security of the believer or the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. You've probably heard one of those three terms or all three of those terms that only point to the security of the believer. Now, if you're not familiar with that doctrine, um, just listen to some of these descriptions of it. Charles Spurgeon said, if there is one doctrine I have preached more than any other, it is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, even to the end. Basil Manley Jr. in 1858 describes it this way. Listen close. Those whom God has accepted in his beloved and sanctified by his spirit, listen, will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end. And even though they may fall through neglect and into temptation and into sin, whereby they may grieve the spirit, impair their graces and comforts, bring reproach on the church, and bring temporal judgment on themselves, yet shall they be renewed again unto repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That's Basil Manley Jr. uh, in the Abstracts of Faith. We hear a more contemporary version of that in the Baptist Faith and Message that says, all true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from that state of grace, but shall persevere till the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves, yet shall they be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation." Danny Aiken says, I believe the doctrine of eternal security is absolutely necessary to a correct understanding of the gospel and the truth of the Bible's concept of eternal or everlasting life. Listen close. The bottom line is this. If it can be lost, it's not eternal. If I can lose it, it's not everlasting. If I can work my way out of salvation, my salvation is ultimately dependent on me and not God. If I can lose it, My confidence, comfort, and hope are pulled out from beneath me, and I am suspended in uncertainty as to my final destiny. Now you say, well, I mean, that's just a bunch of theologians who said that. Are there any scripture that describe that? Let me give you a few. If you're taking notes and you struggle with security of the believer, with the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints, listen to these passages, jot them down, and pray through them this week. In John 10, 27 through 30, 
Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That sounds secure. But he continues, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. I and the father are one. So if Jesus is saying that God the Father holds the believer within his hand and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Who are you to say that someone can snatch the believers out of the Father's hand? Are you able to send your way out of the Father's hands if you're in Christ? Not if you are truly redeemed, though you may fall into temporal sin. You say, well, that's just one verse, but let me give you a few more. Romans 8, 38, Paul says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Ephesians 1, 13-14, Paul says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. Now, if you told me I need a down payment from you, Gibson, and I gave you a down payment, it's iffy if I can pay the rest of it. I may have to forfeit that down payment. I may not be able to give that to you, but, but if God tells you He's giving you the Holy Spirit in your heart, He's allowing his Holy Spirit to dwell within you and that that is a deposit guaranteeing your future inheritance in Christ. I can say with absolute certainty that the Bible teaches that you are secure if you are in Christ. And that's worth worshiping about. Amen? That's worth worshiping about. Um, Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he, Jesus, always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is praying for you if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, if you have union by faith in Christ, he is up there interceding for you and it says that he's able to save you completely. Uh, Again in Hebrews 13.5, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. 1 John 2.19 tells us the flip side, that there are people in our church who will leave, leave the faith completely. They will walk away from Jesus. And 1 John 2.19 says that they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. The reason why Jude was saying, contend for the faith against these invaders, and the reason those invaders ultimately left and the threat was gone, and the believers were preserved or kept from following them, is because they went out because they were never among us. They were never truly, genuinely regenerate, made regenerate by the Holy Spirit. In 1 John 5.13, just one more, I know, I'm saying a lot of verses. 1 John 5.13, he says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. These are the foundational scriptures that teach the security of the believer that point to 
the preserving, holding, keeping nature of God for his own. Um, God did not save me to lose me. He saved me to keep me. And that's the kind of God he is. And that's why Jude is um, overwhelmed with worship. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's not the only reason why he overflows with worship. It's not just God's keeping that helps him. It is also his ability to present you blameless. Look at the next part. It says, not only can he keep you from stumbling, Jude 24, but he also will present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Blameless in his presence. Do any of you feel blameless? Do any of you feel and, and can acknowledge a sense of righteousness on your own? That you could walk into the presence of God uncovered? Think of Moses on Mount Sinai as he desired to see the glory of God and he had to be hidden in a cleft of the rock because God said, no one can see me or they will die, but I will pass all my goodness to parade in front of you and I will cover you and you, you may look upon you know, the, the backside of my train of glory, but you can't see me. Even in that place, um, when Moses came down from the mountain, what did he have to do? He had to wear a veil because of the diminishing aspect of the glory of God that he received just as being in God's presence. And the Israelites couldn't handle the diminishing glory that rubbed off on Moses, much less standing in the presence of God. You understand? Well, you think, well, I could stand in God's glory. If you could stare at the sun, you might have a small chance of standing in the glory of God. Think of all the times in Scripture. Think of uh, Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has this vision of God, and immediately he says, woe is me. And he hits the ground in, in, in frankly, fear and, and almost a state of death. And woe is me. I'm an unclean man, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Think about the passage we talked about last week of, of Zechariah 3. Zechariah the prophet had a vision of Joshua the high priest. Of all the people in Israel, of all the people in the world, Joshua would have been the only one who had an ounce of standing, humanly speaking, of righteousness. He was the only one who would be allowed to go into the Holy of Holies to present the offering once a year uh, for the salvation or the, the propitiation of sins for all the people. Even then, in that vision, Zechariah said, I saw Joshua and said he was like a stick plucked from a fire, but he stood before God and he stood in his glory and it said his robes were filthy with excrement, right? It's this graphic view that even the most righteous person is filled with filth. And immediately the angel was able to um, uh, clothe him with righteousness, so how is it that God is able to present you and I blameless, knowing how sinful we are, knowing that you and I have been sinful? Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just flip over to Romans 3 for just a minute. In Romans 3, before you get to that often memorized passage, Paul is teaching the Romans the purpose of God's law and the purpose of God's law was to demonstrate that we can't keep it and that we're not righteous in and of ourselves. We have no ability to be morally perfect according to God's righteous standard, right? 
We can't do it. So Paul is enforcing this idea in Romans 3.10. It says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That describes us. It describes humanity, that, that we are not blameless. So how is it that Jude can erupt in praise? How is it that Jude can erupt in praise? Because he acknowledges that God can present us blameless, and here's how he does it. Look down at Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, so what do we say about that? How does God present you blameless even though you are not blameless? He does it through the substitutionary death of Jesus. In Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Jesus clothes us. In the same way that Zechariah 3, as Joshua stood before uh, the angels and the glory of God and his dirty robes, the angel said immediately, get him new clothes and clothe them in righteousness. Jesus trades us. You come to Jesus by faith and he gets your sin and punishment on the cross and he trades you and says, here's my righteousness and here's my uh, inheritance and here's my redemption and here's, here's your justification and your forgiveness. You can be presented blameless even though you are not blameless. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore what? Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sin is forever nailed to the cross and as far as the east is from the west is as far as your sin has been removed from you. Though your sins were like scarlet, they shall be as what? White as snow, Isaiah says. Listen, that's, that's worth praying, praising about. If that doesn't cause doxology to well up within you, if you think long enough about it and you dwell upon the fact that your sin and your um, waywardness and your struggles in Christ have not disqualified you, but that God keeps you, if you are truly His, His keeping of you and His ability to present you wells up in worship. And so how can we conclude this? Well, we overflow with worship personally and corporately when we dwell on the goodness of God. 
had this experience um, maybe seven or eight years ago. Uh, I was in a coffee shop and I had had like a really solid run of just walking in the presence of God and walking in the word. Have you ever had kind of one of those just special periods of time when you're really connected to the Lord and you're really walking in his word and you're your prayer life is hitting it and you're, you know, you're, you're on it, man. And you're walking in the spirit and everything is, I had kind of one of those periods of time and I was journaling my prayers and, and I started journaling a prayer instead of just praying out loud. And, and it started off with paragraphs for the first three or four months. Um, but then after a period of a year or more, I was able to journal prayer, eight, 10, 12, 15 pages. And I was just pouring out my heart to God in these times of prayer. And I was overflowing with worship. And there was this one particular time in this coffee shop that I was doing this and I was meditating on these passages and I just felt as though the, like the glory of God was there. Now, I'm not a big feely experience kind of guy. That's not me at all, but it was like an overwhelming thing that I finally took my headphones off and looked around to see if anybody else was as affected by the presence of God that I felt. And everyone was just going about their business, drinking coffee and everything. But I felt like I was in like heaven somehow. I was this amazing experience. I'm really not an experiential kind of guy. Um, so to say that is a big deal, but, but it was the, it was the overflow of worship from a period of time spent meditating and lifting my eyes and focusing on the glory of God and the passion of God and the word of God in all these ways. Now, let me close with this, because this is what has caused me to overflow with worship this week. He says, with great joy, right? Did you catch that part? You thought I was going to forget, right? You saw it, and you were like, he just skipped over that. He's able to present you blameless before the presence of God, before the presence of his glory, with great joy, not too long ago, well, I guess it was maybe 20 years ago. So that is a long time. Um, about 20 years ago, a new relationship happened in my family. I have five brothers and sisters. Uh, one has passed. Uh, there's five left. But at that particular time, 20 years ago, uh, my um, dad um, had previously had a child um, and the woman left, went to another state, had the baby, put it up for adoption. Dad never knew about any of it. So it's like 30 years later for him, this woman through uh, DNA testing and all those kinds of things, found my dad and reconnected with our whole family. And it was kind of this really special moment for all of our siblings and for all of our family to have this new sister She's a super cool lady. She looks like us and we see our mannerisms and, and all the ways in which it was just a really neat experience. And in that two or three week period when we were all getting to know each other, there was this long email thread and she said at some point, well, tell me about everybody. And, and, and I was reading in these back threads where my dad was describing everybody. And, and in the process of this, he gave these like long paragraphs. Well, this is you know, my older sister and gave all the, all her strengths and humor and great things about her. And this is my older brother. And just all these wonderful things. This is my little brother and all these things. And my little sister, he just had these glowing things. And when it came to me, it said, Gibson, well, Gibson is a bit of a religious nut, but sometimes he's okay. And it was just, it was just crushing to me 
it, it was a deflating, sad, painful, difficult thing that in the context of this kind of exciting thing, the only thing he could say about me was that I was a religious nut, but I was sometimes okay. It could not have been a less joyful, it, it was a devaluing, unloving, frankly, cruel experience for me. It reminded me about King David. Think about King David in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel is supposed to go and anoint a new king. He goes to Jesse and he says, consecrate all your sons and we're going to have a banquet and we're gonna, I'm going to choose one of them to be king. They all get cleaned up. They all come to this banquet. Um, they're all lined up in front of Samuel and Samuel looks and he says, it's probably that guy, Eliab. He's, he's, he looks like a king. And God says, do not judge by his outward appearance for I have rejected him. For man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at what? I look at the heart. And so he goes before one of them, one by one by one, Jesse is presenting his sons to Samuel to be the next king. And he gets to the end of it and he doesn't find him. Samuel says to Jesse in 1 Samuel 16, 11, are all your sons here? Basically, I told you to get all your sons. Where are all your sons? Are these all your sons? And he said, well, there's, there's still the youngest one, but he's outside with the sheep. And Samuel said, send to Jesse, send and get him for I will not sit down until he comes here. Jesse thought of David as an, he was an afterthought. He wasn't even to him considered a son to, to Jesse. This painful experience, he was a burden, not valued. Have you ever felt undervalued? Maybe in an introduction like that. Has someone ever treated you in a way that made you feel less than or smaller than or devalued you or presented you in such a way that was disparaging or discouraging or hurtful or painful? That is the exact opposite of what Jesus does here. He presents you with great joy. Isn't that worth worshiping for? That despite all the experiences that you will have with people in this earth, God treasures you. Isaiah said that, um, that can a nursing mother forget the baby at her breast? No. In the same way, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. Right? God has engraved you on the palm of his hand and he cherishes you and values you so much so that he is going to present you with great joy. Now listen. I thought surely God experiences and expresses joy all over the Bible. Right? I thought this must just be one of many times that God has joy. But I looked up every single verse. I typed in my concordance, joy, and I read every single verse describing joy in the Bible. And I'm, I'm telling you, it's, there's a lot of it. But 99% of them are people experiencing joy and people lacking joy and people wanting joy and joy being a human experience. I only found three verses and I found a fourth one just a minute ago. When we read the Lord's Supper, the John 17, only four verses that even hint at the joy of God. Now listen, one of them is um, in Luke 15, 7 and 10. 
In the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep, you remember um, those two parables, he says, there is great joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So here's an indication, helping you form a, a biblical theology of joy from the perspective of God experiencing and expressing it, okay? God's joy is tied to the repentant sinner that is found, right? So that's one clue. But even that doesn't say God's joy. It just says there's joy in heaven, which could be like angelic joy or the redeemed joy. People already in heaven, there's joy. But Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus, while looking to the cross, despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of God, but he did that, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him. So Jesus knew that there would be a future joy that enabled him to endure the cross. Now, we just read the other passage earlier in John 17. I ran over to Cherie afterward, and I said, did you hear it? Like, I couldn't find it before, but I overlooked it, and then and she heard it too. In John 17, uh, he said, in verse 13, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is expressing his own joy at the, the salvation of sinners. You see where all this is going? The lost sinner saved. Jesus looking to the cross with joy. Jesus demonstrating his joy right before he went to the cross. Um, um, in Matthew 25, 21, there is joy when the master says, well done, good and faithful servant, you've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much, enter into the joy of your master. And all of this points to, seemingly, Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Isn't that amazing? At the culmination of our salvation, when we enter into glory, at, at the final judgment, at, at that time, you will be presented heavenward, in heaven, in glory, before the presence of the Father, not sheepishly or apologetically or this is so-and-so, and did you see how all the ways that so-and-so messed up, but man, they're glad to be here. Or, no, it's, it's with a beaming joy that God's joy will be complete when he says your name, brother or sister in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Maybe just to me, but man, this is good stuff that he has great joy over you in his presentation of you as he's keeping you and preserving in you and working in you and, and developing you and strengthening you and, and even bearing with you through the difficult times and the low times and the hard times. It will not diminish his joy when he presents you blameless at that moment. And that makes me overflow with worship today. The reality that God will preserve me and deliver me and present me with great joy. Father, thank you for your tender mercy and compassion and the way in which you bear with sinners, redeemed, bearing the righteous robe of Jesus Christ who exchanged our sin and punishment for forgiveness and for inheritance and for adoption and for mercy. Thank you for putting your Holy Spirit as a down payment, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Lord Jesus, may these truths from your word 
Point us to your glory and your majesty and your dominion and your authority. And as in Revelation 5, may a worship service break out in our hearts. A worship service that goes beyond songs and instruments and our favorite songs or hymns. Help us, Lord Jesus, to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we may worship you and that we may love you wholeheartedly. We thank you for the opportunity to respond to you in worship today. In Jesus' name.